Let me start out by reading our passage of Scripture today. Jesus was uh, at the temple area, the, the, the courtyard around the temple, and he was sitting down to teach people. And uh, lo and behold, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees show up. It says they brought a woman in caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, we're in the second part of our six-week series on grace. It's called Grace Anatomy. Am I getting a little low-end hum there? Maybe something I ate. <laughs> Grace Anatomy. We're, we're wanting to get inside and take a look at what the Bible teaches about grace so we can understand it and how, see how it works in our lives. We're looking for examples of biblical grace in the stories and teachings of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, it says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, it's not saying that there was no grace in the Old Testament and no law in the New Testament, but it's saying there was a timeline. God just kind of showed us, here's what the law is, and here's my grace. Here's something I've learned. It's hard to preach legalism you know, the rules and the regulations, it's hard to preach that from the Gospels. It should be difficult to preach legalism from any of the Bible, but it's especially difficult when you do it in the Gospels, because the Gospel stories are overflowing with grace and mercy and God's goodness. In fact, the story we're looking at today was, in the early days of the church, considered a scandalous text. Scandalous. In order to capture the full significance of this, I need to talk about New Testament history for just a while. So, history lesson going on here, all right? There's a pretty good chance that in your Bible, around this passage, uh, there's a notation next to it saying something like this. Many early manuscripts do not contain John 7, 53 through 8, 12. I'm still getting this ring. You guys hear that? It's annoying, isn't it? Technical things. Poor guys up there, they're scrambling around trying to figure it out. Well, what does that mean? 
what does that mean that they're, they're taken, they took this part out? See, we have in our possession hundreds, if not thousands, of, of uh, copies of the manuscripts, the early manuscripts in early church history. Many of the oldest manuscripts do not include this story. Why? Well, some would say, well, if it doesn't appear in the oldest manuscripts, it must be a fictitious edition. Somebody years later, centuries later, decided to throw it in after the fact. The problem with that theory is that the story was referenced by several theologians and church fathers in the early church, in the, just after a hundred years, early second century. Also very interesting is the fact that some ancient manuscripts have a blank space on the scroll at this point. And that indicates that there was a section of text that had been excluded. Why was this story sometimes excluded? The scholars who have devoted their lives to the study of the New Testament, the analysis of it, they pretty much all agree on this. Many people for centuries, many people thought that this story was a little bit too hot to handle. Okay? Some apparently believe that the story seemed to suggest a lenient attitude toward immoral behavior, especially when you considered the moral climate of the Roman culture then. I mean, they made Las Vegas look like New Bloomfield. <laughs> there were leaders who said, if we can't if we give the impression that, that adultery is something we can just wave off and ignore, our people will never take holiness seriously. Many people back then were like many people you see today. Their main question was, how much sin can I get away with and still get to go to heaven? <laughs> you know how it goes. For this reason, the story was excluded in some of the manuscripts. Now, I begin the sermon this way because I want you to understand that it's always been difficult for some people to grasp the concept of grace. When you hear about the unlimited nature of God's mercy, some people quite naturally say, well, then what's to prevent us from abusing it? You know what? I've never met a Christian, including myself, that doesn't abuse God's grace to a certain extent. Maybe not the sin of adultery, but certainly other sins. Some of us break the law every time we get behind the wheel of a car. You know, those that laugh are guilty. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. Now, if you pressed all of us, we'd have to admit that driving too fast is a sin. But we're clearly not too worried about it, are we? Not in that context. Some of us sin when we get into conversations with our friends. I mean, we know gossip and backbiting is wrong, but we're just not too worried about it, are we? We know speaking harshly to our spouse and our children is wrong, but we just assume God will overlook it. Many people sin every time they punch the clock at work. They rob their employer by spending half the day on Facebook or fudging on their expense accounts. They rob the client by cutting a corner here or cutting a corner there, and then they say, hey, you know what, it's just business. 
Everybody does this. I only know a handful of people who would be so bold to test the limits of God's mercy when it comes to adultery. But many of us never give other sins a second thought. Sins like dishonesty, greed, gossip, materialism, selfishness, bitterness, pride, and so on. There's a principle here that we need to pick up on. In order to take grace seriously, we need to learn to take sin seriously. i got to say that again. In order to take grace seriously, God's amazing grace, we need to take sin seriously. The problem is not that we're in danger of becoming too strict. The problem is we're in danger of becoming too lax on sin, and then we actually miss this awesome grace of God, especially when it comes to our own individual sins. If we're not aware of our sinfulness, what's grace for? For example, it becomes very easy for us to say, hey, that person over there, they keep committing the same sin over and over again. I don't think he or she is really sincere in their repentance, and I don't see enough evidence of change to suit me, and I think they're trying to abuse God's mercy. Well, if you're inclined to say things like that, let me ask you a simple question. Reflect a little bit. A question like this. Well, how's your driving? Or how's your conversation with your spouse? Or how's your thought life? Or how's your dedication in your job? Before we can start to worry about whether or not someone out there is taking advantage of God's mercy, we need to take a long, hard look at our own situation. We need to evaluate our condition. And it's evident in today's story. So I want to look at three things in the story that teaches us us about what it means to take sin seriously enough that we can take God's grace seriously and really experience, not just know about God's grace, but experience it. First of all, when it comes to you and your sin, me and my sin, you stand alone. You stand alone. There's a great injustice in this story. The woman who was caught in adultery was brought before Jesus all alone. Something or someone else is missing. It takes two to commit adultery. And the Old Testament law referenced by the accusers accusers states that specifically both the man and the woman must be put to death. But the man was nowhere to be found. Where was he? It would appear on the surface that he got off scot-free. The accusers brought only this woman. Now, this tells you a little bit about the hypocrisy of those religious leaders, how they chose to condemn one and not the other. And, of course, they chose probably the more vulnerable one. Par for the course for self-righteous religionists. But there is also a terrifying truth evident in this situation. We can't ignore this one. When it comes to sin... When it comes to your sin, you are absolutely alone. 
Maybe the woman wanted to say, wait a minute. What about the man I was with? He talked me into this. It was his idea. I shouldn't be alone in this. This is not fair. Guess what? That's the terrible truth about sin. When you get to the end of the line, you stand there alone. No excuses can be made. You can't shift the blame to someone else. We all come to the point where we must individually accept responsibility for our own actions. Take, for example, someone who was in a traffic accident. I read this. She pulled into the, the intersection, and an oncoming car with the right-of-way plowed into her. The police arrived on the scene, took statements, and determined she was at fault and gave her a ticket. She challenged it in court, saying, It wasn't my fault, and I can prove it. The man who hit me had an expired driver's license. He had no business being behind the wheel. If he hadn't been breaking the law that day, he wouldn't have been on the street. And when I pulled into that intersection, he wouldn't have been there to hit me. So I can't be blamed. Really, I'm the victim of his lawlessness. Interesting twist, to say the least, huh? She was convinced that she was right. Maybe some people would agree with her, but not the judge. She ended up paying a fine and taking a hit on her insurance premiums. Many times we're not so much interested in being forgiven as we are in being told that it's not our fault, that we had nothing to do with it, did nothing wrong. Someone else is to blame. Here's the lesson we need to learn. Each of us must stand alone, absolutely alone, in full responsibility of our actions. No blaming others, no excuses. In order to take grace seriously, we must learn to take sin seriously. The only way to experience God's grace is to acknowledge our own sinfulness. Second thing, your sin first and foremost is a matter between you and God. First and foremost. After King David committed murder and adultery, he wrote in his psalm of repentance, against you, you only have I sinned. He's talking to God. Against you have I sinned. That word only, it's a little puzzling. What about the woman with whom he committed adultery? What about the man he murdered? Didn't he sin against them as well? Well, of course he did. Of course he did. When we read a psalm like this, we need to take into consideration the poetic language of the psalms. We need to think about what David is ultimately saying. He's not saying, I didn't do anything wrong against Uriah. I just killed him. I didn't do anything wrong, you know. (laughs) Or I didn't do anything wrong to his wife, Bathsheba, when I seduced her. No, here's what he was saying. He was saying that those wrongs were the result of his rebellion against God. When it comes to the authority of kings, especially in the ancient world, there are some gray areas. You know, there could be an argument that, hey, the king is the ultimate authority. Any woman is his to have, any life his to take. 
But David acknowledged that this isn't the case. That he's subject to the law of God. And that was God's law, first and foremost, that he had broken. I'll make a confession here. There have been times in my life when I've done wrong things, and my main concern right afterwards was to smooth things over with everyone around me. I gave too little thought to the fact that my spiritual life was suffering. Setting things straight with God wasn't nearly as important to me in some of these cases as making sure everyone started liking me again after my big mistake. Reconciling with others is important to be sure. We need to do that. But our relationship with God comes first. The urgent matter in this woman's life was not how she stood before her accusers, but how she would ultimately stand before God. There will be people who may sometimes bring charges against you. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're fair. Maybe they're out of line. Maybe they'll forgive you. Maybe they'll condemn you. Either way, your status with them is a secondary issue. It may be important, but it's secondary. Of greater importance is how you deal with the mess that stands between you and God. All the men that day laid down their stones. They went away. But we find other examples in the Bible where the wrongful accusers didn't throw down their stones. Every believer needs to understand that ultimately the matter of your forgiveness is a matter between you and God. The opinions, the accusations, the judgments, the condemnations, those are only secondary. First, it's between you and God. As we see throughout the Bible, others may seek to condemn and refuse to forgive you. But God never does that. He never refuses to forgive you. When you come before him, owning up to who you are and what you've done, he pours out his mercy all over you. He washes away all your wrongs. People may try to torture you with their refusal to forgive. But when you know that you've experienced the grace and the mercy of God, their head games, they start to lose effectiveness. Now, if you've hurt someone, if you've wronged someone, yes, reconciliation is a good thing to do as far as it's possible for you. But you also need to remember that God's grace and mercy, his grace and mercy, that's what empowers you, not the approval of others. The approval of others feels good, but that's not what gives you the supernatural power like God's grace, God's forgiveness. So our first point was when, when it comes to your sin, you stand alone. It's your responsibility. Second point, when it comes to your sin, it's a matter first and foremost between you and God. It's his grace that you must receive. Thirdly, when it comes to your sin, you never have the luxury of looking the other way. You just never have that luxury. In some ways, I don't understand the early church leaders 
why they thought this story was so soft on sin. If Jesus had said, neither do I condemn you, go and have a nice day, all right. Maybe people could interpret that, that he waved off the seriousness of the sin. But instead, he used a phrase that it actually kind of worried me the first time I read it. He said, go and sin no more in some translations. Go and sin no more. Now, that was intimidating to me in my early days of my Christian life. Go and sin no more? Isn't that impossible? I mean, when I was first reading this, when I first became a Christian, I was in the music business. I mean, I couldn't make it to lunch without screwing up a few times. This was scary for me. Never sin again. It's a little easier to understand maybe when you look at it in the New International Version when he says, go and leave your life of sin. You see, Jesus was not saying, all right, I don't condemn you today, but this is your last chance. You better be perfect from here on out. Next week, if you mess up or next year, that's it. I'm taking it all back. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, I won't condemn you today. Instead, I'm giving you a chance to start a new life, a new way. You know what absolutely amazes me? There are some people who think that God can be outsmarted when it comes to matters of grace and forgiveness. They think that someone might find a theological loophole and use it to get away with living in unrestrained sin. And they think someone could stand before the throne and quote a couple of verses, and then God would shrug his shoulders and say, well, I guess you got me on that one. (laughs) You found a loophole. Go over there and see St. Peter. He's got the deed to your mansion. (laughs) There are some people who are just a little worried that someone, someone other than them, is going to sin and get away with it. But that's not how it is. Nobody gets away with sin, not in God's eyes. Now, God is generous. He's merciful. His forgiveness is unlimited, unlimited. But he cannot be fooled. He cannot be mocked. We've all seen kids who know how to turn on the tears to get what they want from their parents. And the parents are clueless. You've seen that, but that's not how God is. No one can trick him into forgiving them through an insincere display of remorse. So don't worry about someone else getting away with it. And don't kid yourself thinking that you'll get away with it either. The phrase, go and sin no more, go and leave your life of sin, tells us exactly where God expects us to be. Tells us exactly. Grace isn't about getting permission to look the other way. It's about getting another chance to get it right. What a graceful God. Here's what I hope you'll think about in terms of God's grace. First, don't worry about whether or not someone is sincere, whether or not they're trying hard enough. That's a matter between them and God. It's a matter that God knows about, and he'll take care of it. You know how easy it is for us to say, well, I've got faith that God will take care of me in this situation. But how many times do we look at somebody else's sin and think, well, God will take care of that. I have faith. 
We usually don't do that. We usually, you know. Secondly, take seriously this opportunity that God has given you for another chance. Go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. This is the standard God has set for you and me. So I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit. This is a little scary, I understand, but remember God's grace. Ask the Holy Spirit to shine his light of conviction on your soul to help you find areas of sin that you need to abandon. He's going to forgive you if you do that. You don't have to be scared about that. Address sinful habits. Strive to overcome them. Whether they're sexual sins or dishonesty or gossip or just that all-consuming arrogance that causes us to believe that the rules of the road don't apply to us. And thirdly, grace will not allow you to wallow in the false sense of security that comes from looking the other way. Grace is too strong for that, too great for that. Grace accepts you as you are today, and it gives you a chance to be better tomorrow. Take care of those things that stand between you and God. See, we're all like the woman that the Pharisees brought that day. We're all guilty. We're all surrounded by accusations. Yet we all stand in the solitude of Jesus, waiting for judgment. Doesn't that sound scary on the surface? Not after this message, it shouldn't. Because you know what he says when he judges us, when we're standing before him, telling him about our sins? He says, I don't condemn you. Do you get that? He says, I don't condemn you. Go, leave your life of sin. Try it again. I'll be with you. Grace and sin. I call it a match made in heaven. You know why I call it that? I call the message that. Because only heaven could make a way for these two conditions to be reconciled. Only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross could make it work. You cannot take grace seriously until you take sin seriously. The good news is that when you're willing to confront your sin, God is willing to forgive it and give you the strength to overcome it. So my application for today is really simple. It's really simple. Now, you may have to wade through a bunch of religiosity, You may have to wade through a bunch of false teaching, but the application is this. Embrace God's grace today. Embrace his grace today and do it through faith in Jesus Christ dying in your place for your sin. Have faith that that happened. Ask him into your life today to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your lives. Do that. That's a very simple application. 
You could do it right there in your seat. You could ask a friend or a family member to help explain how you do it. Very simple. And it's just the start of a new life, a new way of life. Let's pray. God Almighty, this is the kind of message you know is hard for me to give. I don't like wagging my finger at other people. <laughs> but I know that finger's wagging at me, maybe more than anybody in the room. So I thank you that we can look directly at our sin, confess it, forsake it, and ask you to forgive it, and you will. Praise you, God. Praise you. I thank you for your grace and your mercy to give me what I didn't deserve, forgiveness. You are very graceful. You are so full of grace that we can't even fathom it. Lord, I pray that we would all learn more about this. Learn more about the minute we sin, the minute we mess up somewhere, to go right to you with it and have you by your Holy Spirit guide us in what we should do to reconcile with another person or or just get straight on the path again. And I just want to thank you in advance for all the sins that we're going to commit from here on out that we're going to confess to you and you're going to forgive. I thank you for that in Jesus' holy name. Amen.